All right. The Disciple Center is a local congregation of Judeo-Christian believers. Uh, We're a community of households who gather to worship, to disciple, to fellowship, and to reconcile relationships. We draw our traditions from historic and contemporary forms of congregations found in Judaism and Christianity. In many ways, we are like all the other congregations throughout time, and in some ways, we are unique. One way we are both like other congregations and yet unlike other congregations is our approach to membership. The Disciple Center uses a renewable membership which we enter into by covenant each Pentecost. As we count the Sabbaths, as we did today, the first Sabbath, uh, I want to use the sermon time to address the meaning, responsibilities, and expectations of membership at the Disciples Center. This week I'm going to just give kind of an overview of what membership is, what the term means, and then we'll look at those aspects um, in subsequent weeks. The Hebrew word yatsur and the Greek word milos, translated as member or members in our English Bible, have a specific meaning. Those words actually mean a limb or a part of a, of a body. That's, that's really what the word member uh, is based on. Uh, so to be a member is to be a functioning, interrelated part of a whole body. And we use the term both literally and figuratively. So we speak of members of our body. We speak of members of our households. We speak of members of our families, members of a student body or a governing body. We also speak of being members of membership, being on a team or being a member at Costco or Sam's Club. Uh, And we speak of memberships in an interest group like a political party or a gymnasium. So we've kind of used that word in a number of ways. And in each of those contexts, it has a slight different meaning. Uh, It's something if you're a member of a group that has won something or if you were on, you're a member of the Olympic team, it's less exciting and reputable to be a member of Costco, right? It may give you a discount, but you don't say, hey, I have a membership card. You don't kind of thing, right? So with this broad use of a single term, it's really important that we understand the idea of membership. That is being members of a group, in this case, being members of a congregation. So before I talk about that membership, I want to talk a little bit about the the meaning of congregation. In our English Bibles, there are several words that are translated congregation. They're translated in other ways too, uh, from the Hebrew and the Greek. Uh, One of those words is adah. You may have heard some of the Messianic congregations are called adat Israel. And they're using that root word. Um, And it means a grouping of people like a family or assembly. Another word, moed, and we just used that word as we were talking about, is the idea of an appointed time which implies an assembly is going to take place. So these words are slightly different. One meaning the group or the assembly, and the other there is an appointed time when we assemble. Uh, Both of them translated congregation. There's a third word, Kahal that is used in the book of Kings and Chronicles and Ezra. 
uh, which also means a company of people gathered. And, and all three of these words are used somewhat interchangeably in the book of Psalms, which is really, if you will, the book of worship for, uh, for the scriptures. So, from the time of the tabernacle to the temple of Solomon, the people of God, God gathered at the sanctuary to worship the Lord. They actually lived around it for a while. Then when they got into the land, it was put at Gilgal, and then uh, they would eventually build, uh, bring it to Jerusalem, and then they would build the temple in that context. And so the people would gather um, at that sanctuary uh, to worship the Lord. Now this was based on set times, and you know those times. Leviticus chapter 23 gives us those times. There were at least three times a year that the families would gather to worship the Lord at Passover, at Shavuot, and at Tabernacles or Sukkot. And those three times they would come and do their offerings and their worship. Now people came at other times, particularly people who lived more locally. But those were the appointed times that God had set. Um, so, uh, what began to happen then uh, is that the families would gather in their homes for the Sabbath. And it's likely that what would happen is people in a village or in a town, some of the families would join other families for the Shabbat and, and there would be this kind of grouping that was done on the weekly basis. But as of that time, there was no formal synagogue or assembly at the local level. People met in their homes for Shabbat and they went to the sanctuary for the Holy Day festivals. Now, after the temple was destroyed and Israel was exiled into Babylon and elsewhere, the Jews found themselves in diaspora. They were in a foreign culture that did not uh, know their God, did not reinforce their uh, ideas with their children. And so they began to gather together in groups that were local, lament the loss of the temple, and began to see this group gathering as a more significant issue. And what began to happen in that context was the development of a new institution that we would call the congregation. That congregation that developed in diaspora and away from the land, when they returned into Israel and rebuilt the temple, they kept that notion too. So now you had the home as the place of the Shabbat, but also a gathering on the Sabbath in what was called the synagogue or synagogue, a Greek word, interestingly enough. And then uh, that began to be called the congregation uh, as well, or is uh, sometimes called the shul uh, in, in that sense. So uh, this word synagogue means a gathering or a gathering place. Among the Greek-speaking Jews, also the Greek term ecclesia, uh, which means to call out, or to call to a meeting, became the common, common term for the assembly for Yeshua or Jesus and his, and his followers as they would gather in synagogues and then later gathering in um, synagogues that were Yeshua-based in, instead of just the traditional Mosaic ones. This word ecclesia is a word that in Greek has the idea of calling out a meeting. You would yell out, 
that there's going to be a meeting, an ecclesia, you were called out. And so the idea came that people were called out of their culture, out of their world, to gather as the people of God. And that became the primary term in the, in the New Testament for, uh, uh, for church, what we would call church. Now, the word church has a whole different connotation. It actually is not a translation from the Bible. It's not a biblical term. It's in our English Bibles. But the word church, which is usually uh, translated, the ecclesia is translated as church in our Bibles. So the church at Corinth, those kind of things. That word actually comes from a Greek word, uh, kurios, Lord, and kuriokas, which means that which belongs to the Lord. And so in Christian tradition, people began to say that that this gathered people were the kuriokas, they were the people of God. Uh, and that's, that's an interesting term, and it's an important one, but it's not a biblical one, it's, it's a traditional one. Now as time went on, the old English and German version of this was called Kirch. And the Scottish version of that was Kirk, K-I-R-K, Kirk. Over time, the K's went from that hard K sound to a ch sound, and we ended up with church. Okay? So it's an interesting thing that the English Bibles use the word church, but the word church is really a traditional word, not really a translation in that sense. But it's become common in all English translations to substitute the word church for ecclesia, which actually means assembly or congregation. So for good or bad, this became the common uh, term. Though many people, and I'm probably one of them, tend to limit the use of the word church for several reasons. I limit the use because the word church now refers to a building. It can refer to a denomination. refers refers to all kinds of things, including some things that call themselves churches that don't really fit the biblical notion of what a congregation is. So I use the word church with people that use the word church, but generally, if I'm talking about us, I talk about our congregation. If I'm talking about this facility, I talk about our sanctuary or our altar. And uh, so I'm one of those who tends to not use the word church as much as I, I used to. It's the same thing with Easter, right? Easter's a funny word to end up being the resurrection. Half the church uses Pascal uh, or, Pas or pa uh, Passover, and uh, a lot of the church uses Easter. So if I'm with people who say Easter, I use Easter, but I prefer First Fruits or Resurrection Sunday. You know, those are just idiosyncratic things. Uh, and I'm sure some of you have similar uh, issues with certain words. So, uh, what did I do? I think I put these in. Oh, I've got it. Okay. So the local church congregation assembly or gathering, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> is for all intents and purposes a group of religious people who gather at an appointed time to pray, engage in worship, to instruct, to teach and do discipleship, to fellowship. That really doesn't mean to eat together, though it includes eating together, but it's, it's, it's ministering to each other, encouraging one another, using our gifts towards one another. Uh, and then to reconcile, which means to deal with our relational 
problems because, as you know, sometimes we bump into each other. And then also to, to reconcile disputes over should we be doing this or should we be doing that in, in that context. Uh, in this sense, we operate in a manner that is like an extended family and approximates the whole congregation, which is the total people of God. Now, because we now have the whole gathering of God's people, which won't take place till the second coming, and we have our individual households, we've still maintained this idea of a local congregation. Though the idea of a local congregation has shifted somewhat. The original synagogue, uh, you had to walk to it and you had to live within the area of that synagogue uh, because you couldn't drive or you couldn't walk beyond a Sabbath's journey. So the traditional synagogue was in a community of people who lived in the neighborhood. That became common for, for Christians as well for a while. Uh, and still was a very common thing in the 1950s when I was growing up where it seemed like every several blocks in various communities that I would go into, I would see a sanctuary. There, and on Sunday morning you would hear bells uh, ringing all over the city as, as people were called to worship in that context. That has moved away. Now we have people who drive from county to county going to a local congregation. It's kind of an interesting uh, shift. So, membership in the congregation during the tabernacle and temple was primarily for Israel. Though uh, some of those, even some of Israel, were disqualified and could not go into the sanctuary area. Uh, and non-Israelites had very limited access to that, to that system. In the synagogue, during the second temple time, which is the time of Jesus, it was still primarily Jews of a given locale or town, but Gentiles who were God-fearers were allowed some limited access and they were allowed to participate at some level, but not a full level uh, of membership in that sense. In the diaspora, local ecclesia, or what we would call churches, were patterned after the synagogue and later began to take on different characteristics as Christianity emerged from Judaism and became the dominant religion. What began to happen was, in certain areas, cathedrals were put in place that would be the larger sanctuaries. It was almost like a quasi-temple. So you had the small little parish churches and then you had the cathedral. And so you would generally meet weekly in your local congregation, but you might meet for a big uh, uh, holy day celebration at one of the larger uh, cathedrals. Now that begins to alter how you do membership and how you operate in that kind of situation and what criteria you have. Most of the uh, membership structures had criteria and responsibilities that I'm going to talk about at another time. But I want you to understand that in Europe, congregations tended to be private and semi-formal institutions. We now had a more formalized structure going. Now I said they're private. 
They were private in the same way that families are private. Uh, what I mean by that is they were non-public institutions. Uh, you don't vote people into your family. You might want to vote some out, but you don't do that, right? Uh, your family is your family. You don't say, uh, you know, you, it's, when you're a kid, you might do this, but it's not going to happen. Come home and announce to your parents that I'm going to move into this family. I like them better, right? You say, okay, but your bike stays here, right? You know, The idea is you are family. You know you belong to family. We know who the members are. That's private, and, and there's no application involved and no structure in that thing. They're also, uh, these things were also formal in that they took on an identifiable membership of, that involved entrance into the membership, exit from the membership, and recording of life cycle events. So what began to happen is that congregations began to have a more formal membership, even though they were family, and that formal membership kept records, and those records of baptisms and weddings and funerals and those kind of things were part of that system. In America, congregations moved from local gatherings to legal entities. In America, we began to own property. It wasn't owned by a denomination, but actual congregations would own buildings, and they would get tax exemption. And to do that, they needed some kind of corporate identity because the American legal system wanted that. And so we began to develop churches that had some quasi-business characteristics and some public functions, and that created the idea of legal membership, a concept that is not in the Bible, not in the history of Judaism or Christianity, really a more modern concept in that framework. Legal membership, not found in the scriptures, has led many to confuse different kinds of membership with that concept. Or they believe that legal membership is the only real membership. Okay? And that becomes a problem as churches talk about uh, membership because legal membership has legal responsibilities that have to do with the government. Okay? So, what has begun to happen now in America is churches are beginning to have no membership. People just come and go like consumers. They participate only at the level of voluntary agreement. You hear all the time, the church is a voluntary organization. Now, once you make the church a voluntary organization, what begins to happen is people volunteer less and less. And so what's happened in these churches is they've had to hire more and more people. They hire people to do the nursery. They hire people to do the children. They hire people to do the youth. They hire people to do the music. They hire people to administrate. They hire people to do everything because the people no longer are the church. They just come and watch the church, if you will. And so you end up with a situation where the people who are running things and hired don't want the congregation to have a say in things, because after all, anybody can come. And they don't want that kind of democracy. So what they move to is a more business model in that sense, and just drop the idea of membership altogether. Uh, 
So in many ways, congregations are no longer functioning uh, in any biblical sense as a, as a congregation. They are really, if you will, like a theater or like a restaurant that provides services, in this case religious services, that people can come and go as they please and uh, they do fundraising to, to monitor that. That is not what the Bible thought of when it thought of congregation and certainly not what Judaism and Christianity uh, believed. So, what kinds of memberships do we at the Disciples Center try to, uh, to have? So I'm going to talk about some types of membership and then I'll be done. This will be fairly, fairly easy. But it will give you a foundation for what we're going to talk about uh, in the future as we look to biblical requirements and biblical responsibilities and biblical privileges in the context of membership. So, the Disciple Center understands the need for various types of membership. It's important for each of us to understand this so that we can explain it to our children, we can explain it to converts, to fellow believers and family members that say, what kind of cult are you in? Right? That, that kind of thing that we run into every once in a while. Right? Uh, just got hit with that a couple of weeks ago by somebody who heard somebody say something about something that one of our members said in a church, and that person went to someone else saying, uh, did you know that uh, Dr. Stokes is involved in a cult? <laughs> and that person said, gee, I've actually been there, and uh, I don't think that's what they're doing. Right? Uh, this person knew nothing, but it doesn't stop them. After all, they're an American. They can say whatever they want. So, uh, we have one membership that we recognize, and that membership is what I would call peoplehood membership. Now, religious Jews understand themselves as the chosen people of God. And this includes from them that they are uh, related to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, and they have a covenantal relationship with God that they developed that God gave them at Sinai. That being a people makes them realize that they belong to every other Jew anywhere around the world. They're part of a people. They are members of a peoplehood. Now the Bible talks about a peoplehood in our context as well. And that's found in Acts chapter 15 verses 14 to 17. In Acts 15, verses 14, you know they're fighting over whether they should circumcise Gentiles. And James says this, Simeon, he's talking about Peter, has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After these things I will return, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen, I will rebuild its ruins and restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. So, God has not just chosen Israel, he's chosen Israel for a unique place as a light to the nations. 
But that light to the nations and that Messiah is to call those of us from the nations to come out of Babel, come out of Babylon in that sense, and come alongside of Israel into that commonwealth of Israel, not as Jews, but as Americans or French or whatever we are, so that God saves the nations just like he saves Israel. And that makes us a people for his name, which means that every other person that God calls from the nations into this peoplehood of Jews and Gentiles, we belong to. We are members of that peoplehood. And that's one of the reasons that we practice a, uh, a kinship with all those who name the name of Christ regardless of their tribe, tongue, or denomination. If somebody is, uh, responds to the gospel and struggles with obedience to lordship, we consider them part of the peoplehood. Now, we don't issue membership cards for that. Okay? You won't get a membership card saying you're a part of that. You receive the Spirit of God and you belong. Uh, God keeps those records and, and they are kept well. Okay? There's another membership that we have, and that's a membership of being part of one body. That's in Ephesians chapter 2. I could do a bunch of verses, but I'm trying to get through this quickly. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, says, For he himself, talking about Christ, is our peace who has made both groups, talking about Jews and Gentiles, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, abolishing in his flesh the enmity which comes from the law of commandments. We talked about that before. So that he might make in himself from the two one new man establishing peace. That he might reconcile both into one body to God through the cross and by it having put to death the enmity. Now, let me talk about this. There is the Jewish people and there are the, the Gentiles who are part of Christendom. Now you and I know that not every Jew believes or practices. And we know that not everybody who names the name of Christ believes or practices. So while that larger group exists, there is a group of believers, those who believe the scriptures, try to follow the scriptures, try to follow the God of Israel as, and the Messiah as they understand him. In that context, God is bringing them together into a body, the body of the Messiah. And that one is neither Jew nor Gentile, bond or free. And that's when Paul's talking about that, he's talking about what that body will look like in the resurrection. And so we are part of that body as well. And we need to keep that in mind. Then there's a membership in a local congregation. And in this sense. The Disciples Center functions not only multi-denominationally. But we use a Baptist polity regarding our congregational definition. So let me read that to you from the Baptist faith and message so you understand the tradition that we come from. A New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ is an autonomous local congregation 
of baptized believers associated by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel. Now the essence here is that congregational membership is based on two criteria. Baptized believers and a covenantal association. I'm going to talk about the covenantal association later in the series. uh, But I need to talk about baptism because then people say, well, the children, if they're not baptized, are they not members, right? So we have to talk about that. So, members are persons who have been baptized and who fully commit to covenantal fidelity from year to year in the congregation. Well, what about children? Children who have been dedicated, according to the scriptures, are considered part of the congregation And we expect that they will make a profession of faith and be baptized as part of the confirmation process between the age of 12 and 16. A person who is 16 or older who has not been baptized is not considered a member of the congregation. So when that little child was dedicated this morning, he became a part of this congregation. And our expectation is, as he grows in grace and in knowledge, he will come to faith in the Lord. He will then be baptized and confirm that faith, what his parents have dedicated him to. He now holds to himself, and he will come into adulthood in the congregation. That's, That's what we're doing. Some congregations do this differently. They will baptize the child... And then confirm the child without baptism when they're older. We dedicate them and then confirm them with baptism when they're older. And part of the reason for this is that infants who are baptized seem to be okay with that. But children who are baptized usually come through a period where they don't know whether they really believed. Because they were believing as a child and not as an adult. And then they want to be baptized again, which creates all kinds of other issues. So historically, churches have run into one of those two frameworks. They will baptize the child as an infant, confirm them with their profession of faith, or they will dedicate them as an infant, and they will then confirm them with baptism uh, at a later age. Uh, What's beginning to happen in evangelical churches that I'm very concerned about is people are pushing for earlier and earlier baptism. And so in evangelical circles, a lot of children are being baptized at four, five, and six. Uh, And then about 12, 13, and 14, they're out of the church uh, and have no interest in local congregation because somehow the people think that if they got wet then they're okay. And that's, that's missing the point. So, now what about non-believing spouses? What if we have someone where the, one of the spouses in the family is not a believer? There's actually a biblical basis for how we deal with them. And that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I'm almost done. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning at verse 12. Paul has already talked to uh, uh, the unmarried, and now he says, To the rest I say, not the Lord. The, The previous passage, he's been talking about what Jesus said about marriage. Now he's saying, this is not the Lord talking, I'm talking as an apostle. Um, If a brother 
that means a believer, has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Now, what he's talking about here is not marrying a believer to an unbeliever. That's forbidden in the scriptures. What he's talking about is you've got a couple who are married, and one of them becomes a believer. What do we do with them? Do we unmarry? Because they were married as unbelievers. And Paul says, if the unbeliever sees what the congregational structure is, that is, they will fully support their spouse being part of the congregation and their children being part of the congregation, they consent to that, then there's no reason to divorce. And here's the reason why. It's the next verse. God says, the unbel- verse 14, the unbelieving husband is sanctified, that is, made holy through his wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. So what he's saying is, God will accept that unbelieving spouse in the congregation for the sake of the believing spouse and the children. That's how pro-unified family God is. Okay? But if the unbeliever says, I don't want to be married to a religious nut, that's the next verse, the unbeliever leaves, you let them leave. And if they divorce, the divorce is, okay, God will not hold the unbeliever accountable for that because uh, we have been called to peace, not to make somebody miserable. The purpose of marriage is not to make the other person miserable. We succeed at that often, but that's not the purpose, right? That's, that's not the issue. So, non-believing spouses who have agreed to support their spouses and children in their covenantal obligation to the Lord and this congregation are included in the congregation, but they have no voice in congregational matters. So they, they can be among us, but they won't have... Uh, a voice when the congregation comes to consensus. Now, non-household family members, that means you have family children who have grown up and moved off, or you have other fa- you have parents or you have cousins or brothers and sisters who uh, are believers uh, and uh, wish to participate in our holy days or some of our life cycle rituals, but want to not feel like they're just a guest all the time. Okay? But they're active in another congregation. Can be associate members of our congregation. Okay? Which means they're free to come and join us whenever we gather. Because they're part of us. As they're part of the whole body. And part of the people of God. And they're particularly part of us as a congregation. Because of their connection with other people. Uh, whose household is part of the congregation. Uh, and we have a number of associate uh, members. Now, that also works for people like uh, the Herrigs who now have relocated. And they will certainly be involved in a church. But they still will come and visit us and be part of it. We want to keep them having the sense of belonging to us, being a member of the body. And so that associate membership is appropriate for that. Also, as some of these little children grow up and they go elsewhere and they're going to have their own churches... They're going to be in their own congregations. I want them to feel like they're still always a part of the Disciple Center and who we are. And so associate membership would be appropriate uh, for them in that, in that context too. 
Now, while visitors are not a part of the normative DC system, uh, Trevor and I walked into the hall this, to, this morning and some guy with a coffee cup and his wife opened the front door and walked out. I came out of my office. I said, hi. They said, hi. And Trevor came out of his office and they just walked past us. And I'm thinking, what is going on? And they walked right out the back door. So we don't know if they thought that was the hallway. Uh, but, you know, we don't have a sign outside. We don't advertise where we are because we're not really interested in visitors in the same way you're not interested in, in strangers just walking into your home. This is family, right? But we do want guests, okay? Members are encouraged and, and invited to bring guests to our services and to our Holy Day gatherings. Gatherings. Now, in most cases, these are going to be your family members or good friends or people who are visiting you from out. We, we don't want you to not bring them along. Uh, but it's important that you remember you're responsible for them, just like if you brought them to my house, you'd be responsible for them and say, put those books back, right? Because <laughs> he'll kill you. He'll backslide and kill you. And that, that would not be good, right? It would not be good for you or for him. Right. Uh, uh, so members are responsible for their guests and unaccompanied guests we really don't want them coming without permission so let me give you an example okay Trevor's mom has been with us a lot okay we know who she is right uh, If she, she could certainly be an associate member but beyond that let's say she wanted to come we know her. She'd be more than welcome to come, right? But if somebody brought somebody and then they walk in and we're all going, who is that, right? We live in a time when, when strangers can be a problem, particularly with our children, but also with the kinds of things that are happening with churches these days. We want to be a little careful. So, so we won't end up giving the first jujitsu lesson to somebody who's your relative. We'd like to know ahead of time that, uh, that, they're, uh, that they're coming. So, membership has eligibility, responsibility, privileges, and statuses. I'm going to talk about these in the next uh, several weeks from biblical texts that are about that. Uh, but I wanted to at least get this uh, uh, settled at the beginning so that you understood that for us, congregational membership is not having your name on a chart or in a, a phone book. It's about being a part of this community. And that means that we are interactive and covenanted with each other. And that's why we ask each household, and we do household, not individual membership, to renew that every year at Pentecost. So I put the uh, um, membership uh, renewal forums out there. I'll have the associate ones next week and others will also be online. Uh, but I'm going to kind of walk us through this process because as the government gets tighter about legal issues, and I've got to talk about this issue of legal membership versus congregational membership, uh, we, we need to make sure that we have cleaned up our act in, in some of those areas. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll do a Q&A briefly.